Today we begin a two-part series on the DC Sniper. We'll meet John Williams and discuss his life in the military and his foray into the Nation of Islam. We'll follow his journey down to Antigua and his meeting of Lee Malvo. We'll also talk about Williams' descent into radicalism and his three-step plan to get retribution on white America. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. What happens when someone is forced to watch The Matrix over a hundred times? Stick around. They're probably wishing Neo would have taken the blue pill, just like Limp Dick Mike. This is Necronomapod. In 2002, Mildred Muhammad had already divorced DC sniper John Allen Muhammad when he and Lee Malvo went on a killing spree. She says no one would listen when she told them she was being abused. He told me that you have become my enemy and as my enemy I will kill you. I took his word seriously. The problem was no one else believed me because they all liked John so much that they automatically took his side. Muhammad says she's a domestic violence survivor and she's trying to change the way people think about this form of violence. Those who don't have scars may feel that, well, that's not me, so I must not be a victim. So that's my message is I didn't have physical scars and it was very difficult for me. So was this another, Ian, uh, topic where we thought this was going to be a one-parter and then we got the message halfway through the week? I have to break this one up a little bit. Yeah. 15 parts, right? This I had no idea about most of this. I certainly didn't. I mean, I remember when it happened. This is a lot more um a lot more involved than I remember, I guess. That's what I thought. Well, from my memory because I was, you know, like a sophomore in high school, so I saw it on the news. I remember seeing mm-hmm. it, but I didn't really pay much attention. Yeah, there's a lot more here than I thought there would be. Yeah, I just don't remember this, this much carnage, but yeah, it's pretty bad. Oh, and you guys were both what's the watching this documentary on it, right? It's called I Sniper. On the uh, the Hulu? Where did we find it? Something called Philo? Philo, seven-day free trial. <laughs> Philo PH, right? Yeah. PH. Yeah. I got to remember to cancel that. I think it's like fucking $25. A month? Yeah. And it's just uh, like documentaries, movies? I don't really know, but it still has ads, like commercials. I'm like, well, I'm not paying $25. Fuck that. It's I mean, like, I'm not going to pay for it anyways, but. It's like a live <laughs> TV, like a YouTube TV, but with only 60 channels. Wow. So yeah, I'm pleasant. not sure the core audience, but like there's no news or anything like that. But it's the only place I could find it. Cause like we have YouTube TV and I, we don't get the vice channel. So it wasn't on there. Is that who aired it originally vice? Yeah. It's a vice documentary. Vice is a good channel. We mm-hmm. got a lot of good stuff. Oh, yeah. On there. yeah. I missed that one. It's pretty infuriating to documentary. It's a lot. Yeah. Just the, the stuff we're going to talk about today. It's, it's pretty wild. And again, we're going back to that randomness that just scares the hell out of everybody. Mm. And this is completely random. This is Lee Malvo just kind of playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo between people. And then if he has a clear shot, that's who he would take it on. Ugh. It's terrifying. We always say the randomness, but. On a lighter note, did you guys see the uh, video I tagged you guys in on Instagram just about an hour or two ago? I already forgot. What was it? Did you see it? I think so. I don't remember. I did the not. person I banging on the window. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
it's scared like the shit out of someone. Yeah, it's looking like in their window. Young, young. I don't know, college kids, and it looks like they're like at like having a party or something. But their windows wide open. It's dark out, and somebody like they have their backs to the window, and someone just runs up and like bangs on the window, and it scares the fuck out of them. <laughs> and I think I sent you guys and was like, this wouldn't happen if you had your blinds closed. <laughs> Remember that one that we found where. They were like on a second story and that guy held up like a scary head on a pole. Oh, yeah. It was like moving it around. That's out their a good window. one. Those people freaked those people freaked out. out. <laughs> that was really cool. Yeah. That woman, she started like jumping up. It's like screaming. Yeah. And the guy turned around and was like freaking out and about pissed himself. <laughs> you got to close those blinds, man. <laughs> So, I don't know. Added bonus, if you have your blinds closed, a sniper can't shoot you through your window. That's right. I mean, they could, but they'd have to be lucky. Very lucky. John Allen Williams was born on December 31st, 1960 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to Ernest and Eva Williams. His mother was diagnosed with breast cancer not too long after John was born, and she passed away when he was three years old. Then his father just up and left. I couldn't find how long after Eva passed away, but he left as a result of her passing. So John was raised by his aunt and with the help of his grandfather. So that's a tough one-two punch. Not starting out great for the guy. No. Why is that dad taking off like that? With the support of his aunt and his grandfather, John graduated high school and then got married to Carol Calglier. Pretty soon after getting married, they had a son, and John pursued a military career. In August of 1978, he enlisted with the Louisiana Army National Guard as a combat engineer, and by all accounts, he was a model soldier. But there were some incidents over the years that showed glimpses into some stuff we're going to talk about later. The first one was John failing to show up for duty and getting into a physical fight with one of his superiors over it. I've heard it's frowned upon in the service to assault your commanding officer. To punch him. I'm not sure if that's true or not. <laughs> really? It's my understanding. Not the military was no holds barred. Like, if you beat him, you get his position. That right? That right? Take his rank yeah, over? You take over. You get to rip his patch off and put it on yours. <laughs> that would make things more interesting, right? I would watch a show about that. I'm not sure that, that'd make for a great uh, military you want to send in the battle. What's it called? Like, kill your colonel or something? <laughs> Assault your admiral. It's different for every Com- brand. Coming soon to Spike TV. <laughs> Molest your major. Jesus, man. <laughs> Cock your captain. <laughs> now that would be interesting. That'd be all right. Cuck your captain. Yeah. If you can bang your captain's wife, you get his rank and pay grade. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> John was described as a womanizer, someone who had multiple women in his life, and it didn't matter if they found out about each other or not. He would just find more side girlfriends. This resulted in Carol divorcing John and John moving forward with his military career. On November 6, 1985, he joined the regular army where he was trained as a mechanic, truck driver, and specialist metal worker. John was also pretty good with a gun, receiving the expert rifleman's badge, which, from my very limited understanding, is the highest level of basic rifle marksmanship for a soldier. I have that badge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought you had the expert coxman badge. Uh, well, I have that as well. Oh, okay. Well, hey, you, my, my sleeves are covered in badges <laughs> of honor. 
Well, you earn that because you can hit uh, you can hit an eyeball with your jizz rocket from like twenty five feet away, right? Mm-hmm. Twenty seven <laughs> and a quarter. Well, that was the record, pal. Yeah, that was right. my record. Yeah, it's pretty good. I even let them pick which eyeball, like spur of the moment. <laughs> so it's like not like a pre-planned thing. Like, hey, sweetheart, you pick. I can hit either one. <laughs> oh, <it's- laughs> which one do you not need? <laughs> In 1985, John was stationed at Fort Lewis in Tacoma, Washington, and this is where he met the woman who would become his second wife, Mildred Green. Mildred and John would end up having three children together, and according to Mildred, things were great until 1991 when John was sent to fight in the Gulf War. Everyone that knew John said that when he came back, he came back as a different person. But before we get into the Gulf War, In 1987, John joined the Nation of Islam and began to self-radicalize towards what would be considered red flags for potential terrorism in today's world. I would expect anyone in war to have a tough time coming back and integrating back, right? Yeah. Like, I'm a big pussy, so I don't have any direct firsthand knowledge, but... (laughs) Just, I, mean, I don't know how you can, like you know, be. or yeah. like in World War Two, you know, doing a couple of years of just killing people and then coming back and turning that off. It's just got to be very difficult. And even then, like coming back and like having no work, nothing to do, you know, yeah, feeling just kind of disenfranchised with your own country that you just fought for. And then nowadays, like, you know, doing that and then coming back and just going to like, you know, a nine to five job. Like that's a crazy transition. I don't know. I mean, yeah. so like sitting in a cubicle. Right. How do you do that? I mean, they do it. But I mean, I think that's why you also see, you know, the PTSD and the, a lot of it. Like, sure. That's tough, man. I don't. <clears throat> yeah. Like we just said, everyone said that John came back from the Gulf War as a different person. We don't know if there was a single incident that happened or if it was a gradual disillusionment mixed with that self-radicalization But what we do know is that John served with a company whose specific goal was to dismantle Iraqi chemical warfare rockets. And for this, he received multiple medals. To the other soldiers, John was known as Private X because he regularly tried to recruit African-American soldiers to the nation of Islam. The army decided that your religious beliefs are your religious beliefs, but John couldn't be trying to recruit other soldiers, especially in the way John was doing it. He was very aggressive in his borderline hatred of white people, and it was flirting with potential treasonous behavior. John was warned of this, and this made him extremely angry and not a not normal anger like that. Just like festering rage. Yeah, this doesn't sound good at all. No, it's not leading anywhere good. And in the in that documentary, the guy, um, his superior from this said he was like, I, at the time, I would say, you know, there needs to be duplicates of the army needs a lot more guys like yeah, this. Yeah. Until some of this shit we're going right, to start talking right. about goes down. They liked his intensity. What like what then we need? We need we want to duplicate this. Like what part did they do? Did what, he like about him? What did the colonel the colonel reference him? like explaining to him how to set up or dismantle a weapon system and just like, you know, stone cold down the business. He's like, this guy knows his shit back and forth and we need more people like this in the army. Okay. Like his bed was always the best made. So it's the same thing as Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh was a perfect soldier. And one of the people 
one of his superiors was quoted as saying at the time I thought, you know, the army would do great with a hundred Timothy McVeigh's. Right. Okay. That makes sense. It's a lot of parallels between the two, hmm. between these two disillusionment. Yeah. After the Gulf war and then going on to attack your country. Yeah. Forrest Gump was able to take apart his gun and reassemble <laughs> it in record time too. He impressed his superiors as well as seen in the Academy Award winning movie, Forrest Gump. You're not wrong. <laughs> you are not. I always wrong. liked that scene too, because he's just, he is, he's just like stone cold face, yep. just moving fast. And like Bubba sitting behind him, just like <laughs> polishing his gun, just real, you know, slow and taking his time. Yep. The other incident we know of is that while on a mission, there were either three Saudi or three Kuwaiti allies walking along the side of the road and one of the soldiers in the vehicle said, quote, don't bother picking up those sand N-words. That night, John took a grenade, pulled the pin, and rolled it under the tent where the soldier was sleeping. No one was killed, and there wasn't any concrete proof that John did it, but his superiors suspected him of it. That's pretty ballsy. It's fucking crazy. We called that fragging when I was in Vietnam. I probably killed five or six of my COs. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense i mean the math adds up based on his age you could be at vietnam <laughs> you've been about what 19 20 years oh old, right? yeah right. uh-huh. called your draft card oh, right oh yeah you had to go i had to go <laughs> it's a whole nother side topic i could go down one day is the draft can you imagine just taking unwilling people and be like hey you're gonna go fight for us doesn't seem like it's a great plan for success. It didn't really work out in Vietnam, did it? It did not. We'll leave it at that. It has to be crazy, though, just sitting watching a lottery on TV every night to see if your fucking ball comes up. And you if your to life to Vietnam. is going to change that's, drastically. I, it, that's just crazy. It's hard to imagine. Yeah. Different uh, times. So they suspected him of throwing this grenade in there. Then regarding that whole being told to stop recruiting people to the nation of Islam, John made threats to his superiors. We know this stuff is true because John would later confirm it. But at the time, there was nothing concrete to charge him with in a military court. The army knew he was responsible for the grenade and those death threats. So the best way to get him out of there was to honorably discharge John. So on April 24th, 1994, he was honorably discharged from the army with the rank of sergeant. In that documentary, though, his colonel said he did court martial him and they found him innocent. So it sounds like they actually did charge him. That's right. For this incident, for the grenade? Not for the grenade, because what he threatened to kill his CO and his whole family. Yeah. And then his CO's boss and his whole family and the colonel's whole family Jesus man the yeah. colonel's like I gotta get this guy out of here so I court-martialed him but then there wasn't enough evidence to convict that's right and they pushed him out honorable discharge I mean I guess at that point you're just trying to get rid of the problem yeah before he actually kills someone and clearly yeah. that might have happened so <laughs> yeah. the guy the colonel was absolutely right I don't play kill your colonel but even still it makes you nervous you're discharging him now he's back in civilian life where he could go kill your family you know like that's got to be in the back of their minds too I'm like, sure This fucking wacko. When John returned home to Mildred and his children, he tried to open several businesses that all fizzled out. He opened a mechanic shop that failed and then a karate studio that also failed. 
was he a mechanic or a specialist in karate or was he just, <laughs> just kind of throwing darts at the board hoping for the best? He was a mechanic in the military. I don't know about the whole karate thing. It's like, how hard can it be? Hi-ya! Kick! Hi-ya! Chop! Uh, chop. Uh, roundhouse! Anyone can do it, It's right? like fucking Dwight when he's fighting uh, Michael at the, the karate dojo. That's a great episode. What does Michael say? I know what that says. It's California roll. <laughs> I recognize that. (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) According to Mildred, when John was around their kids, he was the perfect father. But as soon as he was away from them, he was quiet, withdrawn, and very short-tempered. He was also seeing multiple women, and there are reports of physical abuse toward Mildred. So she finally had enough and filed for divorce. At this point, it's 1999, and instead of going through a normal divorce process like a normal person, John kidnapped his kids, taking them to Antigua, which is an island in the Caribbean. That's what everyone does when they get divorced, right? Right. Kidnap your kids and go to Antigua. (laughs) What else are you going to do? Getting there, John did a whole bunch of credit card fraud and immigration documentation fraud. To get there, John showed a falsified Louisiana birth certificate claiming that his mother was Antiguan. Pre-9-11, a lot easier to do things like that. Once he got there, he became friends with a guy named Randy Nelson, who sold stuff like blank CDs and batteries out of a truck. According to Randy Nelson, John claimed to have worked for the FBI and CIA, like an undercover thing going on while he was serving in the military. Randy said he never saw John get angry or violent, but John always had a gun on him and was always talking about this really aggressive Robin Hood type idea of getting back at society. To make money while in Antigua, John was selling forged U.S. identification documents like packages of driver's licenses and birth certificates to Antiguans wanting a better life or opportunities in the U.S., He sold these for around $3,000 per package, and the Antiguan government says that John sold at least 20 of these in the 14 months that he lived in Antigua. Shit, good work if you can get it, huh? That's a lot of money. Making a living? Good honest work. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Also, according to that reporting, through this business of selling forged documents, John came into contact with Una James, the mother of Lee Malvo. So here's where we have first contact with these with these two. Just a chance meeting. Yeah, it is crazy how two people like that find each other sometimes. Just adds to the randomness of it. Leonard Lake and Charles Ng just happened <laughs> exactly, to yeah. meet through a mutual person. But I guess if not him, it would have been someone else. So Yeah. There's a lot of people out there that you can work like that. So I think there's an argument to be made that John Muhammad would have pushed forward with this. Who was the other one? Yeah. Not, uh, was it Leonard Lake met a buddy, not Charles Ng. Didn't he have another buddy he had met? Yeah. They, they both met a mutual person through one of those like uh mercenary magazines mm-hmm. in the that's back. Ads. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Like just stuff like that too. It's just wild. That's how dudes, in the, the militias and stuff communicated back in the day. One who, was our, who was our boy? Was it a uh, Weaver? Randy Weaver? That's yeah. He didn't have a buddy though, did he? He just kind of moved out there and then got involved in like the local militia. 
went to like the meetings and stuff. Yeah, he got involved in some extremely hateful and racist stuff out there. Well, he's a piece of shit too. So So you just think back then they did all this shit mail order and whatnot. Now with the internet, just imagine how easy it is for crazy people to get together. You just put your personal information on and you randomly meet Kevin. (laughs) And then who knows what crimes these two are going to go on to commit. (laughs) Remember with gang stalking, how it was a relatively unknown phenomena. Mm. And then as soon as smartphones became readily available to the public, the Google searches spike my favorite video of all time is what is that lady uh, with regards to gang stalking that lady isn't like the mailman that she Uh, approaches like you're following me you're stalking (laughs) he's like what the fuck are you talking about he has this look on his face like lady you have five seconds to back the fuck away from me delivering the mail you dirty twat (laughs) the fuck away from me you follow me every day yeah it's the mail i come around every day around this time do my fucking job in shitty weather wearing shorts leave me the fuck alone people got pissed at us for that one too speaking of people getting pissed we had like some trolls messaging us about how it's it's real and paragraph after paragraph after paragraph It's an echo chamber for people with yeah. schizophrenia. I think that pretty sum, pretty much sums it up. So Lee Boyd Malvo was born February 18th, 1985 in a very poverty stricken area of Kingston, Jamaica to Una James and Leslie Malvo. Dave, fun fact. He's older than both Ian and I. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Ian and me, excuse me. Oh, okay. Sorry. Good to know, Mike. Appreciate that <laughs> yep. tidbit. I would not be born for another 11 months. <laughs> Lee Malvo's parents never got married, and for the majority of his life, he was raised by his mother. His father, Leslie, was the nurturer, while Lee's mother was the abusive one. So when Leslie left the family, Lee was around five, and it left Lee with no real protection from Una's abuse. The dad seemed pretty remorseful on how everything went down in the documentary. Yeah. He spun it a little differently. Like the mom was leaving, but he traveled to all these islands for work. So there was no way for him to keep them. But he f- made it sound like he generally genuinely would have kept them. So he didn't of. take off like, uh, no, not Williams like you would dad. think. Yeah. He it was more like work related stuff, at least according to the dad. I mean, who knows, but two sides to every story. Like we said, the area that Lee Malvo grew up, was very impoverished and his mother had to work multiple jobs and a lot of times traveling for those jobs. This left Lee bouncing between friends and family members houses. And then eventually he would end up not having a place to go while his mother worked. This wasn't because Lee was a bad kid or that he was hard to deal with. It was just because financially the people in his life could not afford to feed him. Between the ages of 7 and 14, Lee moved a total of 21 times, and when he was 14, he and Una landed in Antigua. It's not clear if Una was always working or what exactly she was up to, but when they moved to Antigua, she was leaving for months at a time, and this was effectively leaving Lee homeless. So to make money for food and things, he started selling bootleg CDs and movies on the street. Using that estimated $60,000 that John Muhammad was making selling forged documents, he opened up a computer supply store 
And this is where Lee Malvo would buy blank CDs to resell them. Uh, you mean blink CDs, blink 182 CDs yeah. they were selling. That's all he was selling. Yeah. Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> Take off your pants and jacket. Yeah. <laughs> millions of copies. <laughs> Lee Malvo says that he was attracted to John because he saw the way John interacted with his kids. And it was something that Lee had always wanted. So he began building a friendship with John. At this point, we're in 2001, and Una James returned to Lee, and she was introduced to John. She found out about John's illegal smuggling business of getting people into the U.S., and John personally took Una, Lee, and John's kids to the U.S. through Florida. And there's some stuff here that is not clear. Why did John personally travel with Una and Lee? The only answer for this I found is just a potential one. That report by the Antiguan government suspects that John was involved in business dealings with drug smugglers, and they think this is probably his reason for leaving. Wow. So they had him under surveillance then, clearly. If they know even approximately how many of those packages he stole, sold. How would someone in such an honest line of work get involved with such a dirty drug smuggling <laughs> That's just a dumb move, right? You're making 60000 Good hard-earned money. Go home, pal. Let it be. Yeah. You need to involve yourself in illegal activity. Greed, Dave. Greed. <laughs> it's the root of all evil, Mike. Once they got to Florida, Una went her own way while John took his kids and Lee with him. The question is, why did Lee go with John? Now, Lee's going to say that he went with John because of the father figure thing. Um, Una claims that John kidnapped Lee and that Antiguan report says that they believe John kept Lee as collateral for his services of getting Una to the U.S. That Una owed John either some or all of that $3,000 and he was keeping Lee until she paid. That's interesting. I'm sure she had no intention of paying. Even if you think about that, $3,000 is a lot of money in today's world for someone to just to pull out of their pocket, let alone mm -hmm. a very poor island in 2001. Yeah, absolutely. While this time had passed, Mildred was left worrying sick about where her kids were. Like 14 months. Yeah, and, that's a long time. Yeah. No contact at all. I mean, he could have killed them for all she knew. Yeah, and she even says that in the documentary. She's yeah. like, anytime she would get the word that John killed the kids just to get back at her. Yep. That'd be terrifying. I'm mean, for 14 months. That's a long time. Having to cope with that. That's it, crazy. And guys do that all the time. Killer kids to get back at their wife. It's crazy. Terrible. Mildred had an undisclosed medical issue and had to be briefly hospitalized. While she was in the hospital, somehow John had figured out where she was and called her room. When she answered, she asked, why won't you just let me talk to the kids? And John responded with, quote, we don't always get what we want, do we? He also said, quote, as my enemy, I will kill you. He's off the deep end already at this point. Isn't that one of your guys' favorite metal bands? As my enemy, I will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure like they, you know, they'll be selling out some bar downtown Cleveland, crazy mosh pit or something. We already got tickets. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'll. Have fun. <laughs> we got our Slipknot tickets for a couple months. Mike declined. Mike declined to join us. I've seen Slipknot, though. That wasn't a I hate Slipknot bash. I didn't say it was. I just, no, I just wanted declined. to be out there. I, I like Slipknot. 
As my them. as my enemy, I will kill you. Their first single, decapitated head, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Actually, cattle decapitations coming see, in a couple see. weeks. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I'm going to be out of town though. I can't go. Those guys are awesome. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Mildred went into hiding in various women's shelters, and eventually, John came back to Washington where he was detained by authorities and the kids were given back to Mildred. They had one court hearing where Mildred was given full custody of the kids. And this is the point where people say something snapped and John Mildred and her good friend, Issa Nichols were out in the hallway after the hearing waiting for John to leave because Mildred was scared. Her friend Issa was there to support Mildred and be a witness to the court. And when Mildred turned around, there was John waiting. She took off running only to meet him again around the corner face to face. And Mildred said, quote, he put his hands on the courtroom door and said, got ya. Where are the fucking deputies and the police? Oh, like when you're in this custody battle with a guy who's, you know, a known lunatic and that's your whole, mm-hmm. you know, uh, defense as to why you should be getting your kids. Are they not going to have a little extra security there? Might be appropriate. Like, okay. why is he even getting anywhere near her? Yeah, that's a good point. There's a real issue with restraining orders and how those kinds of things go. But I'm not even saying a restraining order necessarily. I'm just saying in the heat of the moment, like if you have a court hearing, you would think that you would make sure that like parties go in and out safely and that, you know, you're kind of filtering people different ways. And, you know, there's some oversight you would think that like you can't just have this ruling on a for a guy who's, you know, kind of a known wacko now and then oh okay dismiss yourselves into the hallway that's probably exactly how it works actually but i mean (laughs) i'm sure it does seen it other ways yeah yeah Mm. that's that's a valid question i've not seen anything personally to me for the record (laughs) nothing anything like that but uh with previous jobs i have held you know sometimes they have extra you know sheriff's deputies there to make sure especially when there's known Right. People like this. Everything's different, you know, but I'd like to think they would do a better job of protecting some of these people. You can, I would like to reiterate. I've never been in a custody battle (laughs) or have been a part of any experiences where deputies were needed. (laughs) Apologies, Ian. I interrupted you. You can hear it in his voice because there's a recording out there of, of that hearing. You can hear it kind of click in his head a little bit. He's not appear to be in the right mind. That's what I'm saying. Like in the courtroom, he sounds like that. How are they not having a little bit extra protection just in case or to make sure that the family gets out safe or the kids get out safe or, you know, whoever was there. Maybe the the kids probably weren't there, but the way he says, so you mean I can't see my kids anymore? Yeah. Sounds sounded a little off. As we're getting to the end of 2001, John changed his name to John Allen Muhammad. And in December 2001, Lee Malvo was taken into custody by Border Patrol in Bellingham, Washington. John was able to bail Lee out in January of 2002 for $1,500. And from there, they started living in homeless shelters. Lee enrolled at Bellingham High School with John falsely claiming to be his father. What the point of that is the whole high school thing, like cover story. Yeah. I didn't know you seem to fit into his plan. You know? Yeah. It's like the Collins. 
registering in high school. There's <laughs> been so much Twilight lately. It's the third time. It really has been. What is going on here? I don't know. This is what popped in my head. Like cover story going to high school. Like, All right. Motherfucker, I'm a vampire. I'm not sitting in high school. You, they had to keep bouncing around, right? Because yeah. they never fucking age. So they couldn't stay at the same high school. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. I saw one of those movies, but it, I don't even think it was like the first one. It was just random. I don't even remember what it was. Yeah. I don't know. I have a slight crush on Kristen Stewart. I know that's probably not a popular opinion, but I, I like her. I like those movies. I thought they were real good. I didn't dislike the movie. It was all right. Yeah. It was decent. But I, like I said, I think it was like a middle of the series movie. So I was like, what the fuck's going on? Why? <laughs> Wait, so he's a werewolf, but he wants to, her. Of course you would watch one in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I sense. didn't do it by choice. <laughs> That's a booty call, Netflix and chill. Uh, it just happened to I be gotcha. on. And then I got so caught up in the movie. I was like, yeah, we're going to chill and we're going to watch this movie. <laughs> Put my dick it's away, like, honey. Chill out. Yeah, stop. <laughs> Watching Kristen stop. Stewart. We'll do a tug job later. Come on. Let me, let me finish this. <laughs> it's like, wait, so he's locked onto her, but it's really her baby the whole time. It was just her baby. <laughs> Some fucked up shit. It is. And now he's fucking that dude's Batman. I still don't get that. Yeah. I don't see it. We'll have to see. I don't see it either. Well, you said you were all pissed. Because it's not rated R. Yeah. You guys were cutting promos in the text thread today <laughs> about fucking PG-13 comic I, movies. I do not like PG-13 movies. <laughs> yeah. Not, I, there needs to be more comic yeah, movies like, that are rated R. People just R. don't talk like that. The dialogue seems silly when it has to be so muted like that. You, like, think, you think Batman does a lot of cusses? Of course. I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I'm going to fist your ass. <laughs> I'd see that movie. I'd see like that. a horny Batman. Or just like Batman him. talking about like he's going to fist the penguin. Sure. <laughs> but only if the penguin is still Danny DeVito. Because <laughs> we need that. We need that movie. I want a rated R movie where Robert Pattinson is Batman and he's threatening to fist Danny DeVito as the penguin. I would watch that. <laughs> You're not going to get this asshole. <laughs> or whatever he says. I don't remember. Something like that. You better copyright that idea tomorrow. <laughs> Hollywood's going to be trying to steal that one. <laughs> so we're going to get into the systematic grooming of Lee Malvo in a bit, but this is where John started laying out his plans to get back at society. And he had three phases to that plan. Hi friends. Dave here to tell you all about an exciting new podcast. I think might be right up your alley. It's called freaky folklore. Tune in weekly to Freaky Folklore and listen as host Carmen Carrion delves into some of the most terrifying monsters and myths from various cultures around the world. Each week, Freaky Folklore takes a deep dive into both the history and mythology surrounding some of the scariest legends of both past and present. Carmen even includes a fictional story involving that week's subject, letting you experience firsthand how terrifying an actual encounter might be. Freaky Folklore also takes a look at modern monsters such as Siren Head and the Smiling Man, trying to make sense of exactly what causes these types of creatures to become so popular. Carmen also tackles some of my favorite subjects, unsolved mysteries. For example, I know you're all familiar with the Dyatlov Pass incident. You know my opinion on what took place. Tune in and see what Carmen has to say about that shocking incident 
and hear about some new theories you may not have considered. If you're into these crazy legends and mysteries like we are, you'll definitely want to check out Freaky Folklore and give it a listen. Listen to and rate Freaky Folklore today on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite podcasting app. Or go to EerieCast.com for more listening options and even more terrifying podcasts. Again, just search for Freaky Folklore wherever you listen to podcasts or just go to EERIECast.com. I had to wait for you guys to take piss breaks. I've been on the edge of my seat this entire time waiting to hear what phase one was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. No one's buying that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've had a piece since page two of the notes. Phase one was to be meticulously planning, mapping, and practicing locations around the D.C. area to shoot victims. This way, after each shooting, they would be able to quickly leave the area on a predetermined path and move on to the next location. They also had the plan to buy a vehicle and change the trunk into a sniper's nest where they could just shoot from the trunk and pull onto a highway, drive away undetected. Jeez. Which they did a condo talk about next week. They accomplished that. John's goal in phase one was to kill six white people a day for 30 days. DC, because it's the center of power for this country, like target the the seat of power. Like that's the idea, right? Yeah. Terrorize the people that make the laws in this country and run the country. I haven't been to DC in a few years. I love that town. I do too. I love DC. Have you been? Yeah, but it was a long time ago. It was like, an eighth grade field trip kind of thing for a weekend. Oh yeah. Everyone does that. Yeah. It's a cool town and a good place to like take kids to like to let, let them just kind of learn and explore and all the museums are free. You just kind of go through and hop around. I've been there a long time either. I got, we got in trouble for having sneaking girls into our hotel room at the eighth grade Washington trip. Nice. I, I missed out. My school didn't do that. You didn't get to go in eighth no. grade. Oh, I thought everyone did that. Yeah. I had to hang out with a priest and walk around all day because for punishment. <laughs> so you got molested as punishment? <laughs> That's not what I said at all. <laughs> That's pretty harsh, man. <laughs> I was chaperoned more closely. <laughs> Air quotes. Due to our misinterpretation of the rules regarding having girls in your hotel room. <laughs> misinterpretation. <laughs> Phase two was set to take place in Baltimore, Maryland, and this was going to start off by killing a pregnant woman by shooting her in the stomach. The next step would be to shoot and kill a Baltimore police officer. Then at the officer's funeral, they would detonate several improvised explosive devices with shrapnel inside. These explosives were to kill a large number of police, which would make sense because police would be at a another officer's funeral. It's quite a plan so far here. The last phase was to take place during or shortly after phase two, which was to extort several million dollars from the United States government. This money would be used to finance a larger plan to travel north to Canada. Along the way, they would stop in YMCAs and orphanages, recruiting young African-American boys with no parents or guidance. Pretty you know, much you what know, he did with Lee Malvo. Yeah, right. You know why they were going to the YMCA's? Because it's fun to stay at the YMCA. <laughs> but if it was so fun to stay at the YMCA's, how are they going to convince these kids to leave? 
That's a good point. They gotta, have a, they gotta have a good sell. You're like, no way. It's so fun to stay here. I'm not going to fucking Canada. <laughs> Fuck off, Muhammad. But it is Canada, Dave. The land of gorgeous women, ice hockey, and delicious beer. That's where you want to go. He wouldn't have to take much convincing. <laughs> oh, Canada? Fuck yeah. I'm on my way. That's Mike's plan, too. Recruit a bunch of boys and go up to Canada. That <laughs> is not what I said. <laughs> he kind of said that. <laughs> you just want your own hockey team, right? <laughs> well, that would be all right. Well, that's what I meant. I'll establish my own team up there, pal. I don't want American kids playing hockey. I want Canadian kids. You're like, I'll find the boys when I get there. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a team of Canadian kids. They're taking these fat, lazy American boys up there. <laughs> so once he recruited a large number of boys and made his way up to Canada, John would begin their training. After their training was complete, John would send them out across the United States to carry out mass shootings in various cities. These attacks would be coordinated and be intended to send the country into chaos that was already building up after 9-11. That's quite a plan. That's like Shoko Asahara fucking level craziness here going on. John had this grand plan for everything, but to start, he needed to get a gun and train Lee Malvo. So they headed to Bullseye Shooter Supply in Tacoma, Washington. According to Lee Malvo, they just stole the Bushmaster XM-15 rifle that they would go on to use in the attacks we're going to talk about. If you're like me and thought, like, how the fuck do you just steal a gun from a gun store? (laughs) It seemed to be pretty easy at Bullseye Shooter Supply. The ATF found that not only was the owner, Brian Borgelt, was unable to account for the rifle that Lee Malvo stole, but in total, there were 238 guns missing from his inventory that were either lost, stolen, or sold off the books. That's not great. He said in the documentary, he just set an empty gun case on the counter and kind of just slid the Bushmaster into the case and they left. Uh. So doesn't sound surprising based on the store's track record. Well, yeah, that guy's on the documentary too. In the yeah, very yeah, yeah, that's right. Brian Borgelt. Yeah. Defending. So how do you defend 238 missing well, guns? Defending, uh, not having, defending the laws, like gun show laws and things like that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's crazy about this gun store is that this Bushmaster rifle was not the only gun that John Muhammad and Lee Malvo had on them. During their time in Washington, John befriended a man named Earl Dancy Jr. who gave them a 45 handgun. On top of giving them that 45, Dancy Jr. went to Bullseye Shooter Supply and bought a Remington rifle on John Muhammad's behalf to avoid a background check. On August 17th, 2002, that rifle was found perched on a bipod in a patch of woods in Tacoma. It had been loaded and pointed towards a nearby apartment complex. Law enforcement traced that gun to Dancy Jr. And he said he had no clue why it was there because that gun was stolen from him. Because the state of Washington had no law requiring owners to report lost or stolen firearms, police had nothing to charge Dancy Jr. with. And he was released after brief questioning. If my last name was Dancy, I would name my kid Fancy Pants. <laughs> Fancy <laughs> Pants Dancy. Yeah. Fancy Dancy for short. That's a cool name. It's a name. <laughs> <laughs> if 
your name's Fancy Pants Dancy. No one's going to forget you. Everyone will know your name. It's true. You're destined for success. Exactly. All right. So if there's any dancies out there and you're about to have a kid, Fancy Pants. (laughs) Fancy Pants Dancy. That's how he says that. And also, I find it very peculiar that the rifle was set up in the woods like that. Aiming at a... Yeah, that's quite odd. Why was it left there? Hmm. No clue on for that. so long. Yeah. Mm. There's something going on here with uh I would love to know more about this friendship with Dancy Jr. What was exactly going on there? Like involvement wise in the plan. Yeah. Yeah. And also the owner of Bullseye talked about his feeling that one of his employees sold this or gave it off the books. Mm. I want to dig more into that for next week. Maybe we'll do like a little selling it on the side, like off the books. So like they just make their own money on it and give them like a discount and avoid the background checks and, and all like the red tape kind of thing. The way he worded it was almost like there was more involvement, like the involvement from an outside person Mm. than just John Muhammad. So I would, I would like to know more about this Dancy Jr. guys, like that friendship, what all that involved. Yeah. All right. Another interesting angle here. I'm going to look into it for next week. Has the state of Washington updated their laws since to where you have to report when a gun goes missing or stolen? I'm going to take a wild guess and I'm going to say probably not. I would expect this out of Texas, <laughs> but Washington, come on. All right, I'll be. I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> a lot of crazies up in Washington, aren't there? Are all the white supremacy, uh, yeah. all those militia groups and whatnot up there. They're this United States of America. There's a lot of crazies everywhere. Oh, well, that's a good point. Yeah, it seems like it's always popping off in Washington when it comes to militias yeah. holding up in the woods and shit. Just that whole area. I mean, you know, Washington, uh, Idaho, Idaho, Montana. Yeah. yeah. Like that's where that uh, the Turner Diaries guy like didn't they have their compound up there? Mm-hmm. Like they shot those people and ended up suing them and they took their whole compound away. Yeah, that was up in Washington, right? Okay, I just didn't know if there was any up if they if they had changed or or not. That's something you can investigate for next week and you come back and let I could us probably know. Google it right now. But, uh, <laughs> my phone's like all the way over there. My hands are comfortable. <clears throat> well, like I said, I'm gonna look into that angle more with. Dancy Jr., but there is a little wrap up to Bullseye Shooter Supply at the end. We'll get into next week. So we will get back to Fancy Dancy. Yes. Good. Next week, Dave, there's more room for that joke. Okay. <laughs> Pencil it in. It wasn't a joke, it was a suggestion <laughs> for the most awesome name in the history of names. Right. Fancy Pants Dancy. And the, it, the 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 shooter supply guy, was it was it Bullseye? He wasn't very apologetic. I don't know. You'd be a little oh, more no. uh Humble, I think, when this rifle that disappeared out of your store was used to do what it's going to do. So I feel as if that doesn't happen. No, a little when, more when, humility when wow. he's being put into a position where his views on gun control are completely. Um, he's just wrong. The whole the whole situation that happened here, like he's legitimately wrong or like ideally you think you think he's wrong. I Ideally, okay. but I mean, there with this, there's evidence that well, he, 238 unaccounted for guns yeah, that his views on gun laws are wrong. Oh, 
After stealing the gun, John Muhammad started to train Lee Malvo for phase one of his plan. He was made to do leopard crawls across the forest floor, calisthenics, read revolutionary literature, target practice, and military theory. Each night before he went to bed, Lee was made to memorize passages from Sun Tzu's The Art of War, and a lot of time, the two of them would just drive deep into the woods and practice shooting while making makeshift targets with paper plates for heads. Other times, John would tie Lee Malvo up for hours in the foothills of Mount Baker, where he would go without food, water, or sleep until John came back to free him. I can see the allure of hanging out with John Muhammad. Sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess his alternative is probably getting deported. So eventually, because that's what would happen. So you just get tied up in the the woods. (laughs) It's like, well, it's better than being deported back to Jamaica, I guess. John forced Lee Malvo to watch The Matrix well over 100 times, quote, to prepare his mind for what was going to lie ahead. Now that's that sounds like it's better now. <laughs> Should make Mike do that. Huh? I've tried to watch The Matrix a hundred times. <laughs> it prepared me for sleep. <laughs> Lee identified with Neo, and John was his Morpheus, like this father figure who chooses young man to quote lead a revolution against an evil government that has people oppressed to the point where they don't even know they're oppressed. And they were going to foster, quote, massive societal change. Those two sentences alone are more interesting than the entire Matrix movie. <laughs> what Lee Malvo got out of this? Yeah. <laughs> Did you watch the new one yet? No, I still haven't watched it. It's okay. You seemed pretty disappointed I when you first talked about yeah, it. Yeah, I went back and watched it again. And the, the action stuff's good. The story's a little... Uh, it's the fourth one yeah the story's a bit mediocre in my opinion but it was all right it was fun to watch and just trying to like get every penny they can out of it just kind of bring it out for all it's worth at this point it's been what almost 20 years so just a little revisiting i don't think it did very well at the box office so i don't suspect we're gonna see any more of them 20 years since the third one came out since the first one right oh first one was 99 so it was probably over that the second two came out like back to back six months apart so yeah probably about 20 years all right you didn't get my uh, blue pill gag at the beginning huh oh i told you that ahead of time pal (laughs) (laughs) but i also said don't use me as the measuring stick for uh, movie references (laughs) after months and months of this training john decided it was time for lee malvo to cross the line from training to actually taking someone's life Earlier when we were talking about Mildred and John getting divorced, Mildred's friend, Issa Nichols, was the one that came as her witness. Issa was also the reason why authorities were able to get the kids back to Mildred because she wrote down a license plate after spotting him in town. John instructed Lee to walk up to Issa's house on East 34th Street in Tacoma, Washington, ring the doorbell, and shoot to kill whoever answered the door. It didn't matter who it was, just shoot and walk away. Issa had her 21-year-old niece, Kenya Cook, living with her, as well as Kenya's six-month-old baby. On February 16, 2002, Kenya was home alone, changing her baby's diaper when the doorbell rang. When she opened the door, Lee Malvo shot her point-blank in the face with that 45 from Dancy Jr., killing Kenya instantly. Hmm. 
Did they suspect it was John? Did Mildred or Issa suspect it was him? Or they just think it was random violence? Completely random. Mm. Because it's it's so, okay, she saw your license plate, but she's so far removed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't feel like anyone would ever piece that together, mm. that he would kill her niece. What's the point? To get all the way back to Mildred. Right. And how would he even know that she was staying there? Right, exactly. Yeah. He told him, just shoot whoever opens right. that door. Which he assumed was going to be her, because he didn't know she was living there. So the kid's 17 at this point. I don't know. I have a lot of mixed feelings about the kid. Yeah, I don't have any feelings yet. I'm just going to kind of let this one play out yeah. and see. I don't know if we glossed over, but according, you know, if you if you listen to Lee Malvo talk, it was rigorous training. It was complete breaking down of him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a kid right do you i guess i just i mean we'll talk about it at the end but the poverty being homeless and then Mm. john shit parents yeah and then john takes him do you is that enough to follow someone blindly i don't know apparently well you get to watch the matrix right you guys would have been a hook line (laughs) sinker in this one play it again john play it again Proud to say I would not have been hooked on that. I got the best sleep of my life. I cannot understand how someone doesn't like the Matrix. It's not that I don't like it. I just can't stay awake longer than 20 minutes when I put it on. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe it was all that, you know, somas I was doing back then. Fucking <laughs> filled out of my mind and just falling asleep. Soma. What is that? Brave New World? Is that what that's from? Soma Trip. Oh, that's what all the wrestlers used to do in the nineties. They used oh. to pop somas. Oh, I didn't know that was a real thing. That's yeah. the drug in Brave New World. No, uh somas, hold on. So somas are a muscle relaxer. They oh, used to take okay. back in the nineties. Uh a lot of the wrestlers, I mean probably still today, but they used to take those, you know, have beers, take a soma, oh. and pass out, whatever. Have you ever read Brave New World? No. I believe it was the like the drug they gave the population to kind of just keep them peaceful and that sounds exactly right. Yeah. So it's that. And then if you talk to uh, the click in the WWE, they say it uh, boosts it if you take somas with carbs. And they swear by the science really? that if you eat pizza with somas, it kicks it into high gear. I can't speak to any of that, but <laughs> that's what they, they they swear. So I don't know. Somas in a six pack sounds like a hell of a time. Sounds great. Throwing some pizza. <laughs> I feel like you'd melt into the couch. <laughs> like you exactly. Just, you don't. Move. That's a party I want to go to. I love to melt into the couch. <laughs> Stay there for twelve hours. So, anyways, so this murder was the first in a series of what they called practice murders that would prepare Lee for phase one of John's grand plan. Imagine someone in your family is characterized as a you know quote unquote practice murder. Yeah, it would be very awful listening to Lee Malvo talk about all of these murders. Be very hard as a family member to listen to the matter of fact. Yes. Randomness of it. Very matter of fact. No, you know, I was I'm very repentant. It's just this is what I did. It's very hard not to want to kill that kid when you listen to this. Was not a kid anymore, but on March 19th. 2002 they targeted jerry taylor age 60 who was killed by a single shot to the chest as he practiced chip shots at a tucson arizona golf course 
John's sister lived near the golf course and he was visiting her at the time of the shooting. According to Lee Malvo, in the days leading up to the murder of Jerry Taylor, John showed him a picture of Jerry and they watched him for multiple days while he was golfing so Lee could learn Jerry's behaviors. This one's weird because all of the murders are random. And this one, Lee talks about being shown a picture to study what Jerry looked like. This was because, according to Lee, John was paid $25,000 to kill Jerry. Lee said that he didn't know who paid John for the hit, but authorities have never been able to confirm if this story is true or not. Well, and the first one wasn't random either. That's what's so hard about watching the documentary is you have the kid Lee Malvo narrating what happened, and it's kind of juxtaposed with victim stories intertwined throughout the whole thing. And it's just, I don't know, just the contrast is... It's hard to watch. Maybe one of the worst 911 I don't like keep saying that 911. Worst 911 calls I've ever heard on this in this story. Just awful. Not one we've gotten to yet though. Right. Yeah. So I guess the only thing that was random about the first one was just the shoot to kill whoever opens a door. Right. Even though they had maybe an intended target, it was just shoot to kill. Yeah. But it's interesting that they were like following this guy around. If that's true, if you believe Lee Malvo's right. version of events that he was shown a picture over multiple days. Yeah. But who knows? Do you think he could have just been making that up and it just wasn't random or, or, or like hiding the fact that it was random? It, I mean, it's odd. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like they stalked him and staked it out for a few days. Right. If it yeah. was random. Everybody again, else on his word though. Yeah. All the other ones. They focused on the spot. They wanted to make sure the spot was absolutely perfect. Not the person, just right. wherever. For the, they, for the getaway and the lighting and things right. like that. This one is it's weird. Yeah, I agree. After killing Jerry Taylor, they started moving east. On August 1st, 2002, John Gata, age 51, was changing a tire that was slashed by Lee Malvo at a parking lot in Hammond, Louisiana. The tire was slashed at the direction of John, and when he gave the go-ahead, Lee Malvo shot John Gaeta in the neck. The bullet exited through Gaeta's back, and he pretended to be dead while Lee Malvo stole his wallet. Gaeta ran to a gas station after Lee left and discovered that he was bleeding. He went to a hospital and was released within an hour, which is fucking crazy. An hour? Yeah. <laughs> I get a paper cut, I need more attention than just an hour. Holy shit, can you imagine getting shot in the neck, goes out your back? kudos to this guy for lying there pretending to be dead like your natural reactions to move to go for the wound to you know out of shock or you know fear like try to cover and protect yourself this guy just fucking laid there and pretended he was dead i don't know how people in situations like that can just lay there and play dead like wouldn't you be shaking with adrenaline like i i don't know how they do it but good for you like how could you lay still like that after getting shot I don't know. John Gate is a badass. I, I would say so. Released in the hospital within an hour. Come on. It's a flesh wound. I'd be writing my own <laughs> eulogy while I was laying there in the hospital. <laughs> I've cut off both your arms and legs. And if not, it's a flesh wound. <laughs> on September 5th, 2002, at 10.30 p.m., Paul LaRuffa, age 55, was shot six times at close range while locking up his Italian restaurant in Clinton, Maryland. He survived the shooting, and the only thing that was taken was the money he had in his car as well as his laptop. He's on a documentary talking about it. He had, like, no idea 
What what happened? Yeah. I just show blood everywhere. Again, shot six times. Man survived. Six times. And you can hear him yeah. yelling on the 911 call that yeah. he's been shot. Yeah. What a man. He probably knows how to build things, too. <laughs> I aspire. <laughs> on September 14th, 2002, around 10 p.m., Rupinder Oberoi, age 22, was shot and survived outside Hillendale Beer and Wine in Silver Spring, Maryland. Then on September 15th, 2002, around 10 p.m., Muhammad Rashid, age 32, was shot and survived while closing Three Roads Liquors. Then on September 21st, 2002, at 12.15 a.m., 41-year-old Million Waldemarian was fatally shot in the head and back with a 22 caliber pistol in Atlanta, Georgia. Million was helping the owner of a Sammy's packaging store close up for the night when out of nowhere he was shot. And this is from the car. This is testing that that sniper's nest. A lot of these in mm. the trunk. People are either coming out of the store after closing up at night or whatever mm. and then just shot. What are kind we, of car did they use? Are we going to get into that next week or is that we can talk about it now. It's a Chevy Caprice. That's a little thing, isn't it? Blue Caprice. And so like the, so like the trunk was made to where like, you can have a like trunk almost shut, but like shoot like through like a hole. Yeah. So like you're like, like sniper, like you're hidden and disguised and mm-hmm. like where the key, like right around where the key would, you could just go into the trunk, shoot right through that. It would just, yeah, you put the gun right there. Fuck. I mean, Caprice is not a small car. I don't know what a Caprice is. Like a an old Chevy police Cap- car. This is the early bigger 2000s. car. Like, this is not that long ago. I don't know why I've never really. They bought the car very cheap. I think it was like right under a thousand dollars. So in the gun. So cost, they stopped making it in the mid nineties. It looked like. Yeah, it was an and older so car. It was an older car. Yeah. In the, the gun, even though they stole it, it was worth like $500 at the time, I think. Mm. So that's what uh, one of the news articles I was reading said that they were able to shut down a whole city for fifteen hundred dollars right that's about right yeah mm-hmm. and it looks like it's got a lot of trunk space the way the car is yeah, spread out like it's, it's a long car so that was on september 21st 19 hours later on that same day claudine parker age 52 who was working at a liquor store in montgomery alabama was shot in the chest and killed during closing her co-worker 24 year old kelly adams was critically wounded with a shot through the neck but survived she talks about like the side of her face just hanging under her chest oh, like she could God. just yeah i wonder why they went south like they were up in maryland i wonder why they decided to go south they drive all over the place if you just follow off just that path. randomness yeah yeah but yeah that pattern zigzags and they they're shooting people and killing people but they're they also rob multiple stores along the way according to lee malvo any type of training to get away with crimes along the way so who knows they might have killed and shot other people that were never linked to this on september 23rd 2002 jim ballinger was watching tv with his son joshua and waiting for his wife hong m age 45 to get back from the beauty depot where she was a manager she was going to be home around 6 45 to cook crabs korean style for dinner but she was running late Around 7 p.m., he got a phone call to come down to the beauty depot because there was an accident. When he got there, he saw his wife under a blanket next to her car with a, with a pool of blood underneath of her. 
Hong had been shot one time in the back of the neck, which blew away most of the left side of her jaw, as well as all major blood vessels in her throat. This was the last murder committed before the actual DC sniper attacks began, and that is where we will pick back up on part two. It's quite a setup. Yeah, I'm not sure we've ever had a part one that gets so intense and so horrific. And then be like, oh, and then we'll get to the part of the story that yeah, went mainstream. Yeah. When they really shut down a city. Yeah. Because no one's connected this yet. That was the point. This is all just what they said, or John Muhammad said was practice. Yeah. And you get, we'll get into that more next week at the various locations and whatnot. But you just, if you're a victim, you, I, I just keep thinking, you know, what if you would have got gas at another gas station? What if you would have got caught at a red light. What if you left the house five minutes later? It just kind of amplifies the randomness factor. So I was saying it's like um, off air when we were talking, you have all these thoughts about your life. Like I'm sitting here right now thinking I'm 35. Today's my birthday. Happy birthday, pal. Thanks, sir. Happy birthday. I have some things that I want to accomplish this year. And, you know, you have these thoughts of the future and you just decided to get gas at that gas station that day. And now... Your life is over. Yeah. It's sad. Crazy. That documentary is just infuriating. And like I said, it's hard to watch. It'll be an extra kick in the nuts and infuriating if you guys forget to cancel your subscriptions. (laughs) (laughs) Also. I will be very angry. (laughs) You had to watch a very upsetting documentary and you're getting charged 25 bucks for it. All right. Well, and I don't know. Any other thoughts on part one? No, I really don't. Yeah, it, it the, just the whole thing is just like these random chance things. It's a random chance that Lee Malvo's mom ended up in Antigua, bouncing all over the place at the same time John Muhammad was there. I think it is safe to say though he would have found someone, even if it wasn't Lee. Yeah, I think that's right. He sure. would, and then trained someone, you know, to do the same stuff. I mean, being a manipulative person like that with these goals, there's always going to be some underprivileged kid that you can take under your wing. And I think that's right. Well, I think we see that with cults, too. Like if you're manipulative and, and charismatic enough, you can, sure. you know. Yeah. All right. We got some patron shout outs. Thank you very much to Bree, Bree, ba- excuse me, <clears throat> Bree Basil, Brandon Scomo, Stacy Balka. Kelly Drollinger, Josie Parker, Whiskey Jesus, Jack Officer, Bark Throne, Brooke Kite, Alyssa Johnson, Jennifer Lines, Ryan Baker, Jennifer Larson, Casey Salanders, Shane Freeman, Trusty Beaver Retriever, Kaylin Marie, Kayla Hansen, Austin Busby, Jordan Breath, Mike Namapod, the pussy pile driver. <laughs> That's my account. I signed up for Patreon. <laughs> Kelly Waxman, Maggie Gibbs, your overlord. Chluhu. That's a lot of consonants. Chluhu. <laughs> Ashley Lee, Jacob, Jack Danello, Sandra Osorio. Rachel Meller, James Harrison, Pittsburgh Steelers, James Harrison. Kent State, right? Now he's a a patron. So nice. You know, how many Super Bowls did he win? If he can listen, you can listen. (laughs) (laughs) 
Brandon Carter, Bathin Nelt, Zan Gantar, Enderblaze, Dana Whitmire, Rhea Menk, Tammy Tummy Sticks, Trent Rust, Richard Merrill, Jesus Martinez, Haley Van Winkle, Steve Reynolds, Alden Eggleston, Dad E, Nightmare No M- Nightmare Monroe, Brian Hearn, Perla Acevedo, Mindy, Donovan Merritt, Heather Evans, Sarah Kologi. I fucked that one up. Sorry, Sarah. Joey, Casey Anthony, and Britney Spears both like Nickelback. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> we I listened to it with both of them after Coitus. <laughs> Coitus. <laughs> Kate Govea. Katie Kelly, Anthony Lopez, Boof God, Jeremy Devine, Jacob Trulson, Uncle Rhino. Thank you all very much. We are at patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Ian. For iTunes, I have one for Gonzalo 2.7, Lean Ulick, Nincompoop 19, and Jose Sepulveda. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. Dave, what do you got? I think we're ready to announce the name of the new beaver mascot in studio. Thanks to all your suggestions, but the winner is Introducing Stone Cold Beave Austin. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic name. Pretty cool. And Pretty. we didn't even come up with it ourselves. No. We're not even being wrestling marks about it. We had two different listeners submit this one. Congratulations to Tabby Humphreys and Patty Shepard. We'll be reaching out to both of you for a uh, little prize. Awesome. Great name. Love it. Stone Cold Beave Austin. It's hilarious. What? I said Stone Cold <laughs> Beave Austin. What? Beave Austin. Fantastic. We're going to have to get him a vest. I really want to buy a vest for him. I want to give him a little middle finger like on his little paw, too, just to like hold up at people. A little fucking attitude beaver over here. Fucking <laughs> dropping us with stunners. <laughs> I kept thinking about throwing him beers. Like when his music hit, just whip a beer at him. <laughs> That's great. Big fan. Well done. We had a ton of submissions. There were a lot of funny ones. We were all cracking up, just, you know, going through the list. Very and clever. I think we had more comments on those posts than anything we've ever posted before. Of course. Only the most important stuff. Right. <laughs> Name our beaver. <laughs> uh, you know, so anyways. Have fun with those names. Name the beavers in your lives. Some of those names that maybe we didn't pick. Every beaver deserves a name, right? I would love to just find a, you know, a beaver on the street and be like, hi, my name is Harry Flint. (laughs) (laughs) So that'll be fun. So Stone Cold Beave Austin will be with us. And, you know, maybe from time to time, we'll let him on the show. Looking forward to it. He's going to keep an eye on the, uh, the kegerator for us. He's looking right at it. Although it's more funny when he looks right at Ian. Yeah. <laughs> Stares him down. Put those teeth. The teeth are hilarious. I'm waiting for one day for this tail to start flapping on its own. I'll be freaked the fuck out. 
we're gonna end up willing him into existence. Yeah, right. Like fucking uh what was the uh shit. What was the uh cryptid we talked about? The the talking thing. Jeff. Jeff, the, the oh, talking yeah. mongoose. Like he's actually gonna sound like Steve Austin when he talks. Stone cold. <laughs> <laughs> I picked Beaver three sixteen says I just munched your ass. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. I'm spitballing here. I'm gonna put words in Beeb's mouth. Mouth. Fucking Stone Cold stunned me before the show's over. <laughs> so I don't know. Any, anything else? We're good. I'm good. I think we're good. So a depressing part one, kind of. I think uh, part two is gonna be just as depressing. Part two is crazy. Just from how much I didn't pay attention to this when it was going on. Mm-hmm. Like I remember my grandma watching on the news. I'm like, oh, that's right. fucking crazy. But then like looking at the news now, like putting tarps up at gas stations So a sniper wouldn't have a view yeah, yeah. to kill innocent people. It's I fucking insane. I don't remember being so crazy too, but yeah, imagine living there. I mean, those, this is terrifying. Well, more of this fun, uh, you know, positivity next week <laughs> uh we are on twitter facebook instagram youtube at necronomapod amazon.com search necronomapod for all of our merch and patreon.com slash necronomapod if you wish to access all of the bonus content uh including next month's necro night at the movies at the ten dollar level i do not believe a movie's been decided upon Mm-mm. no wide open mm. we can go any which way with it I'm thinking the Goonies, maybe. They're going to be fucking shocked when we pick like Toy Story 3. <laughs> <laughs> Not even the first one. Three. <laughs> <laughs> fucking the land before time. <laughs> Fantasia. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you all for your support. We appreciate it. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. <laughs>